Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. You're listening to Feminists Don't Wear Pink, the podcast, based on the book Feminists Don't Wear Pink and Other Lies collection of writing by 52 women on what feminism means to them. I'm Scarlett Curtis. I'm a writer, activist, journalist, and very, very proud feminist. I'm also the curator of this book and the presenter of the podcast. During this series, I'm going to be talking to a few of the amazing contributors who've written our book to find out how they found their feminism and some of the lies that they've been told about what it means to be a woman. Hello and welcome to this very special edition of Feminists Don't Wear Pink, the podcast. This series, we've been lucky enough to talk to some of our amazing contributors about what they've written for the book. Every piece is different and every single one impacted how I see the world. So because we have an amazing audiobook available now, I wanted to make a compilation episode of some of my favourite pieces to show just how diverse and exciting this book is if you haven't read it yet. If you are planning on listening to the audiobook and are an audiobook fan, I just want to tell you, you're not alone. I'm actually an audible master and have listened to over two months of books. Dr. Alama Rabit is one of the most amazing people working today. She's a human rights activist, medical doctor and UN high-level commissioner, and she's literally changing the world every day. But her piece is called Imposter Syndrome, and I think that it bravely illustrates an issue experienced by so many women who feel like they don't deserve their seat at the table. Ten-year-old me would be incredibly disappointed in me. By now, I should have had a yellow VW Beetle, an apartment in the big city. I was born and raised in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, Canada, so the big city could have been literally anywhere but there. Two babies a cat that loved me and was more excited to see me than she was to nap. This is clearly the most unrealistic thing on my wish list. And, of course, I would be the surgeon in town. Let me rewind a little bit. Since I was a kid, I knew I wanted to be a doctor. I was never told that I couldn't be. And as a child of eleven, I learned very quickly that the only things my parents truly cared about were a. how we treated people, and B, how seriously we took our education. So, as I would come home every day with a new idea, like telling my mum I wanted to go to the moon, the usual response would be along the lines of, great, I'll pack you lunch. By the age of 15, I had graduated from high school, and only a month later, I'd enrolled in and began medical school. My vision was clear. 
I would have multiple surgical speciality degrees from elite schools and wear a very unique scrub cap that would relax patients but still make them confident in my operating abilities, of course. And I would always have free time, despite the whole surgeon thing. Because I would live free from the humble entanglements of child-rearing and homemaking and, of course, a la the opening montage of every early 2000s romantic comedy and Grey's Anatomy, everyone who met me would fall madly in love with me. But then, in my final year of medical school, the Libyan revolution broke out, and in an effort to ensure women's inclusion in the nation-building process, I founded a women's rights organisation, The Voice of Libyan Women, VLW. I had done my research and knew that there was this window of opportunity, where if women were around the table dictating security and services and the foundations of the new state, the long-term inclusion and leadership of women would be ensured. I finished medical school and, instead of searching for surgical specialities, I created national campaigns, delivered TED Talks and negotiated global strategies. At almost every turn I was asked where I got my conviction from, as though I shouldn't have it in the first place. My confidence wasn't shaken until nearly a year after I had launched VLW. I had been having coffee with someone I considered a mentor, an older, white male who told me in good faith, Be very non-threatening, Allah. Don't freely give your opinions. After I had told him about a heated debate I'd had with a colleague. When I asked what he meant, he elaborated. There are going to be four challenges that you're going to come across in your career. Your background, Libyan. Your faith, visibly Muslim. Your gender, a woman. And then, he said with a laugh, the last one you're lucky, you'll grow out of it and that's your age. It was the first time I had felt like it didn't matter how hard I worked, how much I applied myself, and that in order for me to succeed, I would have to minimise myself to create comfort for others. For the next few months, I spoke up less, negotiated my point less, not because of his advice, but because for the first time in my life, I wasn't sure if my points or my voice or my suggestions were necessary. Months later, I walked into one of my first high-level meetings. Now, to understand how truly excited I was, I would like you all to imagine you're 21. I had spent the days before preparing, and when I walked into the room, I saw my name engraved on a wooden nameplate. I took a seat and started pulling out my papers. I had never felt more self-assured. And at that moment, a young woman, an intern, I would say was my age, maybe a year older, approached me and said... Sorry, but that is Dr. Murabit's seat, and I hear he is very difficult. She went on to tell me that I should go sit at the back, alongside the other support staff. I picked up my notepad and computer and went and sat at the back. Now, I don't know how many of you relate to this, when you kind of freeze and have an almost out-of-body experience. I didn't come back up to my seat until my colleagues, noticing I wasn't there, told me to move up to the table. As I sat there in the biggest, most important meeting of my life to date, instead of looking at all the points I'd prepared, I felt a little bit embarrassed and angry, thinking up awesome rebuttals like, oh, I should have said that. I wanted to find the intern and tell her that she was out of line. But as I was looking around the room at everyone beginning to sit at the table, they were all much older, predominantly white, and predominantly male. I didn't fit into any of those boxes, and I realised that while... 
Yes, she shouldn't have made any assumptions. The problem is much larger than one intern. She has been taught, by the spaces we all occupy, that the experts don't look or sound like me, that they are older, whiter and male. That moment shifted a lot of things for me. First, it created some clarity in my very foggy brain, unravelling some of the doubts that had been building there for months. And second, it turned my hyper-perfectionist, competitive, strategy-starved brain onto a bigger challenge, that the only way we can become more inclusive and ultimately more legitimate and successful at ensuring peace, prosperity and women's rights is by ensuring that all people can see themselves at the table and that young women in particular have role models, mentors and the necessary support and amplification to ensure that we occupy those spaces. It was the reason I started my own mentorship programme, because often we can't be what we can't see. That is not to say that the doubt will disappear or that imposter syndrome isn't real. I expect I will hold on to doubt until my old age because I will always be those four things. I will always be the daughter of parents with accents, Muslim Libyan immigrants who left everything and everyone they loved behind to create a better life for me and who gave me a name that, despite being only four letters, people still try to abbreviate and nickname. I will always be the little girl who grew up believing she could make it to the moon in a world that still debates whether girls should have an education and whether women should have reproductive rights. A world where little girls believe, from a young age, that boys are naturally more intelligent and capable. But I also know that if we had more women in the room, we could solve a lot more problems. Climate change the most cost-effective and practical ways to combat it are the education of girls and women's reproductive rights. Peace processes? 90% fail within five years, but with the inclusion of women, they are 35 times more likely to last 15 years. Economic growth? If 10% of the girls in a country are educated, they increase the GDP by 2 to 3%. Women then reinvest 90% of their income into their community, as opposed to men who reinvest 35-40%, to 40%, spurring local economic growth and social transformation. And when girls receive an education, they are less likely to marry young, will have fewer kids, and will vaccinate those kids. So, yes, it has taken me years, and it will probably take me a lifetime more. And while my hands still shake sometimes and my voice falters, one thing I have never been more sure of is that what others see as your weaknesses, challenges or reasons to other you are often the very things that made you work twice as hard, read twice as quickly and try twice as much. The time, the effort, the faith, the work, the background, the age, the gender, the family, the experiences, the choices, all of it. They are what made me capable, what made me determined, and what make me a leader and, I would bet, my ten-year-old dream yellow VW Beetle. They are what make you a leader as well. A 
Amy Trigg is an amazing actress from films like Mamma Mia 2, who speaks brilliantly about her experience as a disabled woman. I absolutely love her piece in the book, and I think it shows cleverly and funnily just how annoying it can be to be defined by your gender. She's a total inspiration, and I think we're very lucky she's agreed to be in our book. In the autumn of 2015, I was sitting in a car with my mum, trying to make excuses not to go into the big building to my right. We were in central London, and I was due to attend my first improv class. Oh, what am I doing? Why am I doing this to myself? Mum, why aren't you listening to me? God! My whining continued for half an hour until my mum gently reminded me that I was in fact not a four-year-old. I went into the class and my molecules were rearranged. Time for a bit of backstory. My name is Amy Trigg. I'm 26 years old and I was born with spina bifida. Spina bifida is an ancient benediction thrown upon the Trigg family by a sprightly fairy named Griselda, meaning all daughters in my family are born beautiful, talented, intelligent, honest and humble. Lol. Joke. Actually, what happened was that my spine didn't get its act together while I was chilling in the womb. Apparently, nine months wasn't enough time for this backbone. Hashtag diva. As a disabled woman, I naturally chose a career bursting with opportunities for wheelchair-using women. Oh, no, wait. I decided to be an actor. I trained in musical theatre at Mountview Academy of Theatre Arts, where I was the first wheelchair user to graduate from their performance course. A guinea pig, if you will. I got a lovely agent from the showcase and booked my first small TV gig quite soon after. Then it went a bit quiet. You see, I was only being seen for disabled characters, of which there are very few. I became an unwilling witness to the steady flow of non-disabled actors playing the few disabled characters that actually existed. Apparently, I'd been living in some kind of Amy dreamland, where I was not super aware about these things until they directly affected me. Classic white girl syndrome. Let's not get too crazy negative. I was being seen for roles. It's just that most of the roles I was being seen for were for not gender or disability specific. I often went to general auditions, which basically meant that I, a 22-year-old white female wheelchair user, would audition alongside a blind 42-year-old black man for a part that didn't even exist. It seemed that they were auditioning a disability, not an actor. They may as well have named the non-existent character Tick Box the Third. My main obstacle is being disabled. My other obstacle is being a woman. Being disabled means that sometimes I can't get in the room. Being a woman means that sometimes my voice isn't heard when I'm in that room. Intersectionality at its finest, no? Two years after graduating from Mountview, I read Tina Fey's Bossy Pants and Amy Poehler's Yes Please. Both are amazing memoirs written by goddesses of whom we are not worthy. One day these books shall be found in a tomb post-apocalyptic waterstones and shall be the foundation of a new religion, hardcore cult. Side note, I'm not being sponsored by Amy or Tina. However, I would be very interested in striking up a deal. Hit me up. Amy and Tina speak at length about improvisation. In Queen Tina Fey's book, she talks about the producers and directors of an improv sketch company not wanting to make their company gender-balanced because there weren't enough parts for women. 
And here I shall quote our Royal Highness Tina Fey. We were making up the show ourselves. How could there not be enough parts? Long story short, Dame Tina Fey got on that gender-balanced team without having to go all Shakespeare in love on their asses. So there I am, in my Yoda pyjamas, thinking, hold up, Fey, I can create my own parts. I can be a doctor or lover or reindeer and not just an emotional tool or tick box. Game changer. So, I signed up for my scary first improv class and my world opened up. When I'm improvising, I'm not limited by someone's expectations of me. I am propelled by the support of those around me. That was some deep shiz. Please take a moment to recover before continuing. Improv has allowed me to play the characters I've always wanted to play, which makes this sometimes restrictive industry easier to swallow. It's allowed me to play the whole of me and not just the fragments. I'm also fully psyched because I've got so much to learn about improv. Do you realise how awesome that is? People who want to become instant experts in a field they love are cray-cray. The joy is the learning and the getting it wrong and doing it anyway. In all my time improvising, I have not once done a scene based around my disability. We've never ignored the fact that I'm in a wheelchair and arguably all of my characters have been disabled, but it's never been the main focus of a scene. We've also never ignored the fact that I'm a woman, but I've never been limited to the role of girlfriend or wife or secretary. So, what do we do in a world in which the media representation of disabled folk is so minimal? How do we combat ableism when it comes to writing our stories and playing our heroes? Well, call me crazy, but we could stop having the discussion and actually get down to work. In the words of our Lord and Saviour, Amy Poehler, the doing is the thing. I cannot speak for all disabled people. It's impossible. I don't understand what it is to be deaf or blind. I know what it's like to be a wheelchair user. But I would never say I could speak for all wheelchair users because that'd be verging on egomania. I also don't fully understand what it is to be a woman. I am one, I always have been. But I cannot speak for all women because again, cray cray. I can, however, try to understand. I can educate myself. I can, yes and, others. Yes and is an improv term for accepting and building. It's about being open to new ideas and building on those new suggestions. Listener, I don't know who you are, but as long as you're kind, then I'm totally down for yes-anding you. I'd love it if you could yes-and me too. The royalties in Feminist Don't Wear Pink go to Girl Up, so we were so excited that four of the pieces in the book are by our amazing Girl Up teen ambassadors. African Feminist by Tapiwa Mayoni is one of my favourites. I hope you like it. I was born and raised in Malawi. It is a small country in southeastern Africa. Malawi is a very traditional country and has time-honoured views on gender roles. As you can imagine, I grew up being taught exactly what my culture envisioned a young girl is supposed to be. From a young age, I remember spending time in the kitchen with my mother, cooking and waking up early in the morning with her to clean the house and make breakfast for my father and uncles. 
I remember visiting my grandmother in the village and having to go and collect firewood and water with the other girls while my male cousins played games. When we had family gatherings such as weddings, shinkozues, the equivalent to bridal showers with a slight difference, and other traditional affairs, the women and girls would labour tirelessly, making food and waiting on the guests, while the men lounged and drank. When I was about thirteen years old, my mother and her sisters wrangled my female cousins and me up for malangizo, a kind of counselling where we were taught the various things our culture dictated, such as kneeling to greet elders and to give a male or elder anything, receiving objects from male relatives with both hands and other formalities. The boys were obviously exempt from this. During my high school years, I began to realise that there was a huge difference in the way male students were treated in comparison to me. I remember very distinctly how in my junior year of high school, over half of my class failed math, most of the students getting poor grades were girls. My math teacher made a speech that till this day I still remember. He told all the girls, including myself, that we were weaker learners, that the boys were generally smarter when it came to math, even going to the extent of advising us to switch to Math Corps, a much simpler math curriculum, or risk failing our final exams. And there were many other classes in which the same speech was repeated, from chemistry and physics to accounting and economics. We were encouraged to either drop the subject entirely, pursue a much easier curriculum option, or ask the supposedly more intelligent male students to tutor us. There are many other instances of the inequality I personally have experienced, but to name them all would make this a journal and not an essay. In my senior year of high school, I had the opportunity to attend the 2017 Women in Science, WISI, Science, Technology, Engineering, Art and Math, STEAM camp. It was an absolutely life-changing experience that facilitated the making of the feminist I am today. WISI was essentially about taking a hundred girls from across the globe and giving them a voice, telling them that they matter, that their dreams are important, that their weaknesses are okay, and that being a girl is their strength. It was the first time in my life that I started to question a lot of the things I had been taught and made to believe. It was the first time I started asking why. Why was I below any male? Why was I regarded as not smart enough, not strong enough, or worthy of the same rights the males in my society so liberally enjoyed? Why was I not allowed to have opinions? Why was I not treated equally? Why? Feminism, to me, means that I am deserving. I am deserving of a better future, an education in a conducive environment, a career of my choice in which I am treated fairly, respect for the things that I believe in, recognition for the things that I do well, a voice that is not only heard but listened to, access to equal opportunities and, most importantly, the permission to exercise my rights because of my humanity and regardless of my gender. I hope for the day that feminism becomes a mandate for many girls in my country, not just a quiet awakening, but a loud uprising. I hope for the day that girls and women in Malawi uplift each other to be free-thinking individuals that embrace their dreams, their colour and their truth. The day that my sisters and I can be intelligent, resilient, fearless, outspoken, powerful, successful, compassionate and just happen to be girls. 
Jodie Whittaker is one of the coolest people in the world who's just changed little girls' lives forever by becoming the first female Doctor Who. I'm obsessed with her piece, a drunken interview with her mother about feminism, which is more reflective of most people's actual conversations about feminism than anything I've read before. Mum, am I a feminist? Are you a feminist? Mum, what's a feminist? It was the early 90s, and the word was new to me. It had been said angrily, sort of spat at me by some lad when I'd argued about something. Apparently my short hair and unshaven armpits were all the proof he needed. I was 12, for fuck's sake. Why would I shave? At least let me get to my late teens before you completely annihilate my appearance. I could tell by the way he shouted, Shut up, you feminist! that he meant it as an insult. It was, of course, a put-down. A dirty word. I couldn't remember my mum's response. Surely she gave me her pearls of wisdom for my amazing comeback. But, alas, I've forgotten the rest of this incident. So, last night I interviewed her about feminism, phone recorder and all, while we waited for our takeaway. See, not all women cook. Because today, 5th of July 2018, at the age of 36, sitting with my 67-year-old mother, I know the answers to these questions. But I'm curious. Was I brought up as one? Or did I become one? When did feminism become a part of my mum's worldview? How, as a parent, do I, or we, instil a deep-rooted feminism in my daughter? When does the glass ceiling get shattered? How long has it been fucking up there? So, the interview begins at 20.45. Me. So, mum. Actually, I'll call you Yvonne. So, Yvonne, when did feminism come into play for you? Do you remember? Mum slash Yvonne. I remember exactly, because I grew up in a village in Yorkshire in the 50s and knew nothing about it. Then my late teens and early 20s were the late 60s and early 70s, and women's lib was what it was all about. I was fully aware of it, and I thought I fully was it. I was single. I lived in London, away from home. I supported myself. I could get the pill. Me. Okay, okay, not so different. Late teens for me were exactly the same. But I suppose the difference is you hadn't felt any limitations or frustrations before that, whereas I was already angry by 20. I was angry that I was allowed to train with the youth cricket team, but not allowed to be pipped, as there were no girls allowed on the team. I was angry that I got dragged out of a female changing room on a primary school trip because they thought I was a boy. I had short hair for fuck's sake. I was angry that drama school only accepted one third of women to two thirds men, as there aren't enough jobs in the industry to justify training us all. I was angry that my confidence to speak up would often be interpreted as bossy or she loves a little chat. I was angry that every time I threw a ball, I was complimented by being told I threw like a boy. I don't throw like a boy, I throw like a girl who has been taught how to throw a ball, so fuck off. Sorry, Mum, I think the takeaway is ready. Also, can you remind me to ask you more questions? I think I might be dominating the chat. Interview suspended, 21.05. 22.30. We've eaten. I've had half a bottle of wine. I'm ready to press record again. 22.35. Interview resumed. Me. Did you bring me and Christian up intentionally gender neutral? 
The wine has confirmed I'm absolutely nailing this interview. Mum slash Yvonne. I don't think that term had been coined, but I wanted you both to have the same chances as each other, and I wanted you to be able to be who you wanted to be. When I was growing up, I wanted to be a teacher, but I was told by my parents that I wouldn't make it, so don't bother trying. This pisses me off so much. She would have been an amazing teacher. Mum slash Yvonne. I never wanted that for you or your brother, regardless of your sex. I just thought if I could make you confident and teach you that anything is possible, then I'd have done my job. Me. Okay, okay, that's brilliant. And thank you so very much. I think that's maybe why I was so frustrated as a kid, because you guys never restricted us to gender roles. But you can't go anywhere without them being reinforced. I mean, watching some kids' cartoons now makes me want to scream. Why has that character been drawn with mascara on? It's a fucking animal! Why are those characters running and jumping and that girl character is watching and giggling at the side? Why, when I was at school, were no celebrated scientists, musicians or playwrights women? Why are we only taught about the achievements of men? Why, when women unite and come together with their voices raised, does the term witch hunt get bandied around? Why are some of my natural characteristics referred to as tomboy? I take a breath and realise I've only asked her two questions and she already looks pretty tired. But I'm on a roll now. There's no way she's going to bed until we've smashed the fuck out of that glass ceiling. Me. So, Mum, what do you want for women in the future? Mum slash Yvonne. I want my three granddaughters to be on a level playing field from day one. I want it to be illegal to discriminate and legislation to be put in place that makes it pointless to discriminate. And don't just say wages are going to be equal. Do it now. I want them to be treated with respect and be equal without asking for it. I want things to move forward. I press stop. One day my daughter might be interviewing me. Will it be the same conversation? I fucking hope not. This has been a very special edition of Feminists Don't Wear Pink, the podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please download our audiobook available from all the usual places to hear all our amazing contributors' pieces in one place. And if you're not too annoyed by my voice already, I read all my pieces in the book, so I hope you like them. Thanks for listening. This series, we've been lucky enough to talk to some of our... Oh, is that off my Siri? (laughs) (laughs) Hello and welcome to this very special edition of Feminists Don't Wear Pink. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs>